Second Thessalonians 2, uh, 13 to 15 is where we're going to be. And let's start with, everybody know the name of John Newton? How many people know that name, John Newton? Um, so John Newton was a, um, lived in the 18th century. He was a slave trader, uh, would run ships back and forth from uh, Africa to Europe, North America. And um, then he, he came to Christ. And uh, he um, not only abandoned the slave trade, but he became an abolitionist and worked in England for the abolition of slavery. Uh, he also happened to write the most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, correct. Well, he said this. It's one of his most famous quotes. And see if this, as I read this, see if this isn't also your testimony, if this doesn't describe you. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen? Just an awesome way to express our lives, uh, our own testimonies. And I want you to look again at that quote and just think about it, whether or not it really does describe you. Because it should describe you. It should describe every person who testifies to being a follower of Jesus Christ. This should describe how the grace of God first brought us into a relationship with Him. By His grace, I'm saved. It should describe how the grace of God is growing us over the course of our entire lives to become more and more like Him. And it should describe that ultimate hope we have of being perfected in Him in eternity. That should be my testimony. It should be your testimony. Now, in today's passage, we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15. Paul speaks about the divine grace, that's what we've titled the series, the divine grace that, listen now, chooses us to be saved in an ongoing way sanctifies us by the power of the Holy Spirit until the day that we obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he does, and all of that is phrasing out of the text. This is what he does for those who, who believe in the truth. Is that you? Do you believe in the truth? And is that grace saturating the entirety of your life from start to finish? Because if it is you, you should be very aware of the grace of God working in your life. You should be aware of that right now. You should be able to testify to that right now. You should be able to say, by His grace, this is when He saved me. This was the moment in time when I went from darkness to light, when my eyes were open to understand the truth of the gospel, and I turned my life over to Jesus Christ. By his grace, this was the moment I was saved. By his grace, this is what I see happening in my life right now. This is how I'm growing in him. These are the things that God is working on in my life. And by his grace, this is the hope that I have, that I'm going to spend eternity with him in his glory, and being perfected before him forever. That's my hope. So I hope that's you. I hope that's your testimonies. So let's read the text together. We're going to pray, and then we'll unpack all of that from 
uh, this short passage. So this is uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, 2, 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. Let me pray for us. Our Father, I pray that your spirit would work in this room right now to help us, Father, understand grace better understand the gift that you've given to us, understand your love for us. So that, Father, every one of us would be impacted in these moments, hearing your word, having the Spirit working in our lives. Every one of us would understand the way you're working. And God, I would pray, especially if there's any in the room who have not yet entered into that faith relationship with you, to have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that today they would make that decision and that all of us would grow, not only in our understanding of who you are, not only in our understanding of your grace, but God, in our experience of it, that we would be growing more and more to be like Jesus until that day when we see him face to face. Thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer, for delighting to give good gifts to your children. We receive those gifts today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You with me? Worship was good today, wasn't it? Worship was good today. I was just thinking about that again. Here we go. By God's grace, this is what we're talking about. By God's grace, I am loved and glorified. Loved and glorified. If you were here for the last message, you know that it was a pretty tough message. We talked a lot about uh, the lawless one in verse 8, who is the Antichrist, and there was a lot of kind of end time stuff, and the focus of what Paul was really writing in that last section was on more the negative aspects of that, really talking about those who in verse 10 are described as refusing to love the truth and therefore refusing to be saved. So it was, a, it was a tough passages, passage, and now he turns our attention back to the Thessalonians themselves. He turns his attention back to them. He's writing to them now, and he wants to encourage and build them up. Paul expresses his genuine love for them, his genuine care and compassion for them. He wants to bless them, and he wants to assure them that they are indeed on track for Christ. That's why First and Second Thessalonians, of all the New Testament letters, is just so encouraging of the people, because for the most part, they were on track with Jesus and just needed a little encouragement. And Paul's doing that. And so he writes to them, verse 13, look at it again. He says, we, and remember he's talking about, he's writing on behalf of it's Paul, but he's with Timothy and he's with Silas. So when he uses the we, he's talking about the three of them. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, Thessalonians. I'm, I'm so grateful to God for you. I feel, in fact, an obligation to thank God for you, and then affectionately calls them. Notice in the text it says, uh, brothers, we've dealt with that already. It's Adelphoi, it's, it's siblings, it means brothers and sisters. So he, he says in brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, beloved by the Lord. 
Not only do I love and care for you, but God does. And I want you to know that. God loves you so much. This week, in, in preparing for this message, just curious how conversations sometimes just completely parallel the things that I'm studying. And do we believe the Holy Spirit is doing that as I'm getting ready to preach a message and I have certain conversations? Well, Pastor Dwayne, uh, he's our small groups pastor, connections pastor, and he was up at a conference uh, in, uh, uh, in the Muskokas for small groups. And he was thinking about a thing that he had heard something at the conference and he was thinking about a thing and he texted me back and we just got into this little conversation back and forth uh, by text. And, and he was thinking about this phrase that we use at the end of the service. What's that phrase that we use all the time at the end of the service? What is that? What is it? Oh, right. That's the one. So, so you are loved. He was thinking about that. And he, and he just said this. He was pressing the point. He was asking me the question. In essence, when we say that, is that genuine? Not, not that he was doubting it, but he's asking a really good biblical question because we never want anything to be done here simply out of routine, okay? Because we always did it. We're always going to do it. And, and we want to make sure that when we say something like that, that we're actually backing that up with action. Amen? Not just saying a thing, but actually living it out. So he's asking the question, is it genuine? And the reality is, yes, we are committed to loving one another here at Harvest. And we see that as one of the defining characteristics. The, the primary defining characteristic of us as the followers of Christ is that we love one another and that we love those who are outside of the church. And we show that in any number of different ways. So we are committed to loving one another, but, but we often fail at that. True? We often fail at that. And for all kinds of reasons, we often fail at that. But... The you are love that we say at the end of the, at the end of the service is, is aspirational from our point of view. We're going to say it, that you are loved. We are seeking to love one another here. But that you are loved is also a reminder that God loves you and that God's love is perfect. Amen. That God's love never, ever fails us. And so when he says you know, beloved by the Lord, we want you to hear at the end of every service when we say you are loved, we want you to know that you are beloved by the Lord, that you are the beloved of the Lord. We're reminding you, and, and let me just show it to you this way, you are loved, let's have the next line, you are loved by God perfectly and by one another imperfectly. And if we could have that in our minds every time we hear that, you are loved. We're not going to say the next part, but we're all going to know it. You are loved by God perfectly and by one another, by us here, imperfectly. But we have that as our goal and our aspiration as a church. And, and then we start to think about, okay, if we're going to talk about God's perfect love, which we're seeking to emulate, that's actually the kind of love we want to show for one another is the kind of love that God shows for us. What's the primary way that God loves us? I thought about a couple of verses here. The first one is Romans 5, 8. God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love, another translation said. He showed that to us. The primary way God shows his love toward us was rescuing us while we were in our sins still and making a way for us to get back into relationship with him. Of all the things that God could do and all the things that God does do to show his love for us, this is number one by far. Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And Jesus himself said, and this is in John 
of 1513, Jesus Christ himself said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater love than the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us, lost in our sin under the curse and condemnation of death. Jesus saved us. We are loved, aren't we? We are loved. So, by God's grace, I am loved. But the second part of that, I am loved and glorified. Now, that word glorified is a power-packed word that means something very specific, and it refers to the end goal of all things. Jump down to verse 14, the end of verse 14, that you may obtain all of this, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The future that lays ahead of us is ultimately to be in the presence of God forever. That's what we're shooting for. And to have a perfect, glorified body that is no longer subject to the effects of sin and death. Okay, no longer subject to springtime allergies. Amen? No longer subject to that. I popped a Claritin on myself this morning. Okay? No longer subject to that. No longer subject to grief. Some of you have lost loved ones in the last months. No longer subject to grief. That's what the glorified body is. No, no longer subject to pain. No longer subject to illness. No longer subject to, to um, the risks that we take out on the roads and the accidents that happened. No longer subject to the effects of sin in this world. No longer subject to fits of anger. No longer subject to relational discord and, and marriage breakups and estrangement within families. I mean, take me there right now, amen? Take me there right now. That's our glory. That's the ultimate. That's what we're shooting for. And we get there, again, this is a whole section, it's one letter, it's pretty short, but you go back to verse 1 of chapter 2, and, and Paul says, this is all about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. And Paul's informing them about all of that, and we're longing for that day, our final and ultimate hope fulfilled, and by God's grace, I am, or rather I will be, glorified. But before we get to eternity, by God's grace, I am, see this next, chosen and saved. Chosen and saved. Now, one of the most controversial theological issues within Christianity is whether or not God chooses us to be saved. And the argument goes like this. If we believe that God chooses us, then that eliminates uh, human free will it's to eliminate personal responsibility to believe the gospel and, and to um, discount the fact that we actually choose to become followers of Jesus Christ. That's kind of the argument. And, and we don't want to minimize the human part, the volitional or willful part that we're under in order to come to faith in him. My story is, and I shared this, I think, a couple of weeks ago, but my story is that it was 40 years ago this month, and I made a decision on a Friday night to go to the youth group at the church we were attending. I made a decision to sit at a table, even though I didn't really know anybody in the room. I made a decision to stay there. I made the decision to actually listen to what the guy was saying. 
and at his invitation to become a follower of Christ, I made the decision to raise my hand and indicated that I wanted to become a follower of Christ that night. I, from my perspective, I made all of those decisions, and so I can rightly say, in June of 1979, I chose to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, what I know is that the Bible, as I read it, did God choose me or did I choose him? What I know is that the Bible teaches both of those things. If you're reading the Word of God, the Bible teaches both of those things. The the fact is that the Scriptures tell us that God chooses, to use two other Bible words, God elects, that's a Bible word, God predestines those who are going to become the followers of Jesus Christ. But I also know that the Bible teaches this, Romans 10, 13, and this is more akin to what happened to me on that Friday night in 1979. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I called on the name of the Lord. I was saved. So which is it? Did God choose or do I choose? And again, the scriptures tell us it's both. One of my old seminary profs uh, said on this point, uh, the moment you reconcile the free will of humanity, okay, my ability to choose, your ability to choose, the moment you reconcile the free will of humanity and the sovereignty of God, God chooses, the minute you reconcile those two things, you become unbiblical because the Bible does not reconcile those two things. We are meant to simply accept both of those truths as, as being true, both of those things as being true, and to live with the paradox of that and say that that is rooted somehow in the mind and heart of God. Because when I read this letter, Paul says he's thankful for them, verse 13, because God, what's the word in your Bible? Chose, chose, chose. God chose them as the first fruits to be saved. That's consistent with what Paul wrote in other letters and what we see in the whole of Scripture. And so I accept the fact on its face, still knowing that as a human being faced with the message of salvation, I still need to make a decision from my perspective. I need to follow. I need to call on Jesus. And one of the things that people, they hear this, God chose, God elected, God predestined, and they struggle with this. And one of the main things that they're struggling with on this point is how unfair it is to those who were not chosen. Why do we even need to evangelize if God's going to save those people anyway? Well, the fact of the matter is I'm not God, and I don't know who he's chosen. And so I'm just going to keep evangelizing because I don't know who he's chosen to salvation. I don't. And the whole idea of this not being fair is absolutely the wrong perspective to have in this. Rather than thinking how unfair it is to those who are not chosen, this actually compels me to be grateful to God for choosing me. When I think about how undeserving I am, Why did he choose me instead of my neighbor, Rob? Is there really any difference between me and my neighbor, Rob? Both married, both having kids, both live in the same neighborhood, both go to work every day. 
There's no difference between me and my neighbor, Robert. He doesn't love Jesus. By all appearances, at least at this point in history, and maybe something will change, but as far as I can see right now, he has not been chosen to salvation. And, and, and instead of saying, that seems so unfair to Rob, I need to look at it and go, wow, this is such a grace gift to me because I don't deserve it. There's no possible way this could come to me on, on any merits that I have before God. And in that moment, you see, this is a series about grace. In that moment, I begin to understand something about grace. God chose me. God chose me. Now think about it in, in these terms. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 was a classic verse on this idea of grace, but I've changed the pronouns here so that it's very personal to us. For by grace, for by grace, I have been saved through faith. And this is not my own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of my works, so that I may not boast. God chose me. God saved me. And the saving is a declaration that I am righteous before God, that I am justified before Him, that my sins are no longer on my account, but have been forgiven, that I've been saved from that condemnation of eternal damnation and separation from God. And, and the question then that is pressing before us is, to this room. If there's anybody here who has not yet given their life to Jesus Christ, not yet chosen him, this is the moment. This is the moment for you. That you would find forgiveness in him and receive the grace of God into your own life. You don't deserve it any more than any other person in this room does. But Jesus is nevertheless offering salvation to you, offering an abundant life here, offering forgiveness of sins, offering you eternity with him. And I would plead with you in this moment to receive that grace gift from him. Wherever you are, no special prayers are necessary no walking of the aisle is necessary. You simply need to pray in this moment, Jesus, I'm surrendering my life to you to follow you. I choose you in this moment. And then if you are already saved, chosen and saved, and you know that, then you are also called and sanctified. Called and sanctified, or better, called and being sanctified. I'm in a process of being sanctified. We are saved, verse 13 continues, through, notice this word, sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification is the process by which we are becoming in this life more and more like Jesus. And so it, it is, I, I make my decision, I get saved, put it that way, and then everything between the moment of salvation and the time that I go to eternity, that's the process, the period of time of sanctification. It's increased holiness in our lives. And Paul says in verse 14, to this, when he used the word this, he's talking about that initial point of salvation, the sanctification process, the glorification, the whole salvation package is what he's talking about. To this, he called you through our gospel. Now, some important points on 
this, okay? I'm going to give you seven of these, so if you're taking notes, leave lots of room. I'm going to throw these up on the screen. And um, my, let's talk about my sanctification. Let's talk about your sanctification. Okay, so you're, you're writing this down for yourself here. First one is this. Um, my sanctification only uh, happens or happens only through the gospel. It only happens through the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is the only means of this happening. You know, this is in contrast, again, to go back to verse 10, last week's passage. This is in contrast to those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. These apostles, okay, it only happens through the gospel. These apostles, at this point where this letter is written, the the apostles of Christ are scattered around the known world. They've moved out in different directions to go to places that are hostile to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They faced uh, beatings, they faced imprisonments, they faced starvation, they faced death. Many of them, in fact, all of the apostles but one was martyred for their faith. At great risk to themselves, they've gone out into the world to tell the world about Jesus Christ because they know no one's getting reconciled to God apart from the gospel. If people had a way to get to God apart from the gospel... The apostles could have stayed back in Jerusalem and made a comfortable life for themselves. They could have gone back to Galilee and taken up their old jobs again. But at great risk to their personal safety, they knew they had to go out and tell people the gospel. Otherwise, people were condemned and going to hell. Listen, my sanctification, my growth, my salvation, it only happens through the gospel. Secondly, it is a cooperative work. My sanctification is a cooperative work between me and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in us, yet we, and this is right in verse 14, we believe the truth. So there's the God part, the Holy Spirit at work, and there's the me part, which is I'm obligated to believe these things and put them into practice in my life. And so it's a cooperative between me and the Holy Spirit, and I can't shirk my personal responsibility to be working on my own sanctification, my own salvation. And what are you doing in very practical ways to be putting away sin in your life? We're going to come back to that. Here's a third one. My sanctification is a necessary evidence of genuine salvation. If you have the point in time, here's when I became a follower of Christ, but there has been no growth in your faith, no evidence that the decision you made back here is genuine, then it probably isn't. It's not enough to simply accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Not enough to just do that. Once I do that, the process of change begins in my life. And that becomes an evidence. Now, we're not saved by those works. All of the efforts to become more like Jesus are not saving us. They're sanctifying us. We're already saved. But our works point to the genuineness of our faith. And uh, James said it simply this way. James uh, 2.17, faith without works is dead. It's dead. It's not real. Number four. My sanctification addresses the abuse of grace. And a Christian might contemplate, and Paul actually addressed this head on, but a Christian might logically assume, since grace is such a good thing, and grace always is poured out on sin, that if I sin more, 
there would be more grace, and that's a good thing. Do you understand the logic? Does that not make sense? If grace is applied to sin, sin more, more grace. How could that be bad? And actually, in the first century, there were Christians who were thinking along those lines, and so Paul addresses that head on in Romans chapter 6, and he says, no, 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 no. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? What does he say? God forbid. God forbid that we should do that. That would be evidence of a heart that is not genuinely converted, not genuinely become a Christian, because you're abusing, you're abusing grace. And no Christian should abuse grace in that way. Romans 6 is the place you need to go for that. We don't have time, obviously, to study all that out in this message. So you can't say, because of God's grace, I can freely sin, he'll forgive me. That betrays the wrong heart and mind. Instead, what we ought to be saying is what 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 says, uh, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's the goal. And that's where we see God's grace continuing on in our lives is, is in that process of making us holy like, like Christ is holy. I just, like, that was like three minutes and, and you, you could literally spend like a whole series in Romans 6, 7, and 8 discussing all of that. All right, here's number five. It's progressive. It's progressive. It's never fully obtained in this life. No one achieves perfection before heaven. No one achieves perfection uh, before heaven. And um, I have this chart that I showed you a year and a half ago uh, to explain all of this, this process of sanctification. And again, the uh, horizontal axis at the bottom is time. And the vertical axis is our progress in Christ if we become a follower of Christ. If we do not become a follower of Christ, you can see in that yellow bar that we, we stay the entirety of our lives um, dead to sin, dead in our sin, and uh, not achieving to salvation, not obtaining to the glorification. But at the point of conversion, you can see here that that happens fairly early in this person's life. Point of conversion, you become justified or declared righteous before the Lord. And then you begin this process, and you can see the jagged line up, and hopefully we are making forward, upward progress to becoming more like Jesus, but it's a jagged line because sometimes we have setbacks, sometimes we fall back, sometimes we doubt, sometimes sin gets a grip on us, and we have to battle that out. There's all kinds of different things that happen in our life that can kind of set us back for a little while, but overall, it's forward progress. Until the point that we die, and at that moment, we become perfected in Christ and receive our glorified bodies in Him. And so, showing you that chart simply to say that it's progressive, it should be growing throughout the entirety of our lives. Number six, my sanctification is an expression of my love for God. And we should see everything we do not as a way of earning God's favor. We should never think of it that way. We should think of everything that we do as an expression of our love to Him. And so when we do things for the Lord, this is so hard for us, when we do things for the Lord, we do them with no strings attached. You get that? We're always in this barter system with God. At our carnal worst, okay, we are in this barter system with God. We think it's reciprocal. God, I'm going to do something nice for you, and what I'm expecting for this is some blessing in return. You already got it. 
you're saved. You're saved. You're going to get to go to heaven, and you get Jesus right now, and after those two things, everything else is bonus. That's it. So I'm not doing anything. I'm, uh, I'm not doing anything where I'm expecting anything back from God. I'm simply doing it, no strings attached, because I love him. So every time we serve, we're serving Jesus, and we're serving him just because we love him. Every time we give an offering, we're not saying, God, look how much I gave you today. That's a pretty good amount. Wouldn't be bad if some of that came back. <laughs> Wrong. No strings attached. God, here's the money. It's way less than I ought to be giving you. It's way less. Every time we serve, every time we give, it's a love gift to him. Every time we worship, God, did you see how awesome I was in worship today? I sang everything. I even raised my hands. <laughs> it's a love gift to the God who graciously and kindly saved us. Here's the last one, number seven. It's an act of grace on God's part. My sanctification is a further act of grace on, on God's part toward me. Not, so it's not just that he saved me by his grace, but the gospel being applied to my life means that it's an ongoing application of God's grace in my life to make me like him, to make me just like him. Now, if you want more on this whole topic, and I've just kind of breezed through it here, but if you want more on this whole topic, again, it, it's in a message um, in the Here I Stand series from about a year and a half ago. Um, and the info is on hbc.info. It's all right there. So if you're taking your notes um, on the microsite right now, uh, then you're going to see the links are right there to that message. All right, let's move on. With all of that in mind, Paul's been encouraging them, and now he gives them an exhortation. He's kind of told them what's what in their life. By God's grace, you are loved and glorified. You're chosen and saved. You're called and sanctified. And, and so... In light of all that, in light of what God has done in your life and the grace he's poured out, here's the first real exhortation that he's given to the Thessalonians. He's going to urge them toward obedience. And he says, it's whatever God says in my life. It's whatever God says in your life. In light of all that he's done for me, he gets to call the shots. I mean, this is so hard for us as human beings because we want to call the shots in our own lives. Amen? We want to call the shots. We want to decide what's best for us. But, but in light of his grace toward us and saving us, he actually gets to call the shots. Verse 15, so then, brothers, so then, in light of what I just told you, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to Stand firm and hold to imperatives, the force of a command in our lives. These are not suggestions. These are not good ideas. These are not best practices. This is coming as a command. You are required as the followers of Jesus Christ to stand firm and hold to what? The traditions that you were taught. By us, by our spoken word, by our letter, referring back to 1 Thessalonians and now 2 Thessalonians, 
Listen, you have to stand firm, required command, stand firm and hold to this apostolic teaching. Now, this letter predates. We have the New Testament, 27 books uh, here attached to the 39 books of the Old Testament in our Bible. We have this in front of us right now. But at the time that Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, they don't have the New Testament. And remember, we said that these two letters to the Thessalonians are, if not the earliest, they're in the first three letters that were written. Galatians may be written around the same time. So there is no New Testament at this point, but there are apostles wandering around teaching people the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working through that apostolic teaching. And so this letter comes before what we would call the canonization of the, Old, of the New Testament, rather. So what they had in terms of God's Word was the Old Testament, if they had access to that. They had the Old Testament, and they had the apostolic teaching in terms of letters and the apostles going out and teaching them orally in, in person. And people are being told here, the believers are being told to hold to what Paul had taught them. To hold is to get a firm grip on and actually in a continuous way to never let go of that. It's an ongoing action of tenaciously holding on to the things that you've been taught. To God's word. And we need to apply that here right now. Tenaciously hold on to God's word. In every area of our lives. Because this book is the, and this is what we say in our, in our statement of faith, this book is the final and sufficient authority for all of life. The Word of God is the, now think about that in terms of your life right now. All the different aspects of your life, your marriage, your child rearing, your friendships, your, your, the things you own, the place where you work, the leisure activities, every single aspect of your life. I want you to think of the whole thing. And now I want you to apply this phrase to every aspect of your life. The Word of God is the final and sufficient authority for all of life. True in your life? Is that true in your life? In our, we have these four pillars, and in the first of our pillars says that we proclaim the authority, the authority of God's Word without apology. Do you see it that way? In light of everything that Jesus Christ has done for you, in light of the love of the Father to send His Son for us, do you see it that way? That God gets to call the shots. Whatever you say, God. So test it. Want to test it on a few things? Want some examples? Not sure? Just close in prayer, Todd. I think I got it. It's fine. <laughs> Whatever God says about sexuality. Whatever God says about sexuality. Sexual activity, according to the word of God, is to be within a monogamous, heterosexual, marital relationship. God created sex. He wants you to have as much as you want to have within a monogamous, heterosexual, marital relationship. If, if, if the sexual activity that you are currently engaged in does not fit that criteria, then you are not under the authority of God's word and you are not living out the whatever you say, God. 
And a change needs to happen. So the prayer is, God, because this is the message now, God, sanctify, sanctify my sexuality. You see where this is going? Do you want another example? (laughs) Whatever God says about the church, I am to be part of the church. Hebrews 10.25 says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. Go ahead and pat yourself on the back because you're here this weekend for this, all right? It's like, well, I'm here, I'm here. We're to be engaged in the life of the church. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. You can't say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just not into the church. Jesus is the head of the church. If you're not into the church, then you're not into Jesus. You're into something else, some quasi-Jesus religion thing that you concocted for yourself. It's not the word of God. I'm to be part of it. I'm to be under godly leadership. I am to serve. I'm to tell other people about Jesus. I'm to invite them here. God, sanctify, sanctify my view of the church, my part in the church. Or how about this one? Alcohol. Whatever God says about alcohol, amen? (laughs) Whatever God says about alcohol, amen? amen? God does not say, don't drink. Surprise. All the Baptists in the room, I'm not sure that's true. God does not say don't drink. Jesus drank, by the way. What he does say is you should never get drunk. You're sitting on the back deck this summer, grab another beer. You're going to get impaired. You know you're going to be in a position where you can't drive, that you're not saying the things you want to say, that you're not reacting to the people around you the way you should be reacting in a godly way because you've now given control of your body over to another substance. Ephesians 5.18, if you want the verse. God, sanctify my use of alcohol. Amen? I got one more. There's lots. I mean... Money. Earn it diligently, save it carefully, spend it wisely, give it generously. Are you doing all of that? Has God sanctified your wallet? Is God in control of your bank account and your assets and your, your spending? Is God, is God Lord of your budget? God sanctify all that I own. Here's a few more. More quickly, are you loving those on the margins, the vulnerable, or do you walk by on the other side? Are you loving your enemies? When you worship God, do you worship as if you mean it? God, sanctify my worship. Have you forgiven those who have wounded you? God, sanctify my attitudes toward those who have hurt me. Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Father, sanctify my marriage. Wives, do you respect your husbands? Are you submitting to their loving leadership? 
Parents, are you making it hard for your kids to see Jesus in any way? God, sanctify our family. That list could go on and on because the Word of God says something about literally every aspect of our lives. It is the final and sufficient authority for all, all of life. And every believer should be quick to say, whatever God says, whatever God says, because you know His grace, because He's been good and kind to you. And even in His call to obey Him, He's being so grace-filled and He's seeking to keep us from all the ill effects of sin, the sins that we commit. And so there's an obvious call to holiness, to be sanctified. The word literally means to be set apart for God. There's a call to that in this message, to appreciate what God has done for us by responding to what we've heard. And I want to come to that opening quote again. I want to come back to it. And I've underlined a couple of lines here because there's several lines here that are simply covered under the grace of God. But there's some parts here. Again, it's a cooperative between me and the Holy Spirit. And the lines that I've underlined are really in my court to do something about. Think about it again. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. So how do we change that? Without losing the rest of it, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to confess before the Lord? What changes need to be made in my life in order to show progress in my sanctification, to become more holy like He is holy? So here's how we're going to close. Joel and Don are going to come up to the stage right now, and they're going to lead us through a song, Come to the Altar. And I know we haven't been especially good at this here since we've come into this building, and those of you who go back to our days in our previous location, you know that we had more freedom to do this kind of thing. But I'm going to have you stand right now. And I want us all to be thinking about What area of our life needs to be repented of? What do we need to change? And as the music is playing, and and they're going to lead us through a song, and you can certainly sing through that, or you can pray. But I'm making an invitation to you. If you want to come up here to the front and seal it more publicly, to say, you know what, I'm willing to step out and walk down an aisle and kneel at the front and say, there's something in my life that needs to change. And I'm just going to spend some time. Nobody's going to bother you. This is just an opportunity for you to more publicly say, I'm wanting to be sanctified in this particular area of my life. And come and pray. When you're done, you go back to your seat. And let's make it easy for one another. I know it's a little tighter in, in, in the rows. Just make way for people to get out that want to get out who are in the middle. Let's be gracious toward one another during this time. So let me pray for us. And then we're going to hear this song and then you can just come and respond. I'm not going to say anything more about it. Father, thank you for your word. To a person here, Father, we know it's so easy to rebel against you, to to chafe against your commands, to have 
pockets of our lives where it's, it's a, it's a no-go zone. But Father, this morning we want to declare out of our love for you and because of your abundant grace toward us, we, we want to say, God, it's whatever you say. It's whatever you say. And so as we spend this time in prayer, in worship, in repentance, Father, hear every one of these prayers and pour out your grace in this place again this morning. I pray in Jesus' name.